Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19. Promises, promises. People make all kinds of promises. God keeps his promises. This is, we're excited about that. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue to worship you. And we continue our worship now as we turn our attention to your word. Captivate our attention, please. Teach us. Mold us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are old enough to remember the first President Bush's campaign before his presidency. You'll remember one of the most famous lines of his campaign, and now I'm not going to quote this first part exactly, but you'll get to the point where you know exactly what I'm about to say when I quote him on the second part. He said something to the effect of campaign, uh, Congress will ask me again and again to raise taxes, and I will say no. Then they'll ask me again, and I'll say to them, Read my lips. No new taxes. Well, how did all that turn out? In our country, presidents are chosen via a voting and electoral college process. People vote, at least most vote, based upon which candidate will enhance the voter's lifestyle. The voter, voter evaluates the promises of a particular candidate, and then they vote. Now, the campaign, with all of its propaganda, does not necessarily forecast how a four-year term in office will play itself out. I would say, I think I'm right on this, that broken promises are the norm in this arena. As we turn our attention to Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, we will recognize how Luke and God is portraying Jesus. He undoubtedly presents Jesus in his messianic office. Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. This is undoubted, and the Luke's proclamation in his, his writing clearly articulate that Jesus is the Messiah. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem in this account, there is a discernible gap between the perception of the gathered crowds and the religious leaders. At this stage in Jesus' ministry, the crowds were declaring his kingly office. We'll notice that. And they were hanging on his every word. We will notice that. However, there were many that were not on board with this, namely the religious leaders. But we, we must note is this. The people's declaration of Jesus as Messiah did not install Jesus into his office. And equally true, the religious leader's rejection of Jesus did not prevent Jesus from being installed into that office of Messiah. People's opinion really was not involved. People did not have a vote about whether Jesus is or was the Messiah. 
while offices like the President of the United States are determined by the vote of people, etc., this particular office, there is no electoral college. There is the determination of one, namely God the Father, the Sovereign over all the universe. This passage declares that Jesus is the Messiah, whether you like it or not. Now what we notice if we were to study the book of Luke is that in the first 10 chapters of Luke's gospel, there are approximately 12 references to the kingdom of God. And as you turn from chapter 9 into chapter 10, so the first nine chapters, there are 12 references. When you get to chapter 10, through the end of Luke's gospel, the concept of the kingdom of God ratchets up significantly. There are 34 references to the kingdom of God in the last portion of Luke. And so, undoubtedly, that is a major emphasis of this passage, of, of this section. Now, before we dive into the, the triumphal entry portion in Luke 19, I want us to look at a couple of these passages because I think it's very important for us, for our discussion this morning, but also for our understanding of the kingdom in general, and for some of our coming studies, as in the coming weeks we're going to begin a study on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to need to have a, a, bit, of an a bit of information, a bit of a, a concept of this kingdom. So first of all, Luke chapter 10, just for a moment. Luke chapter 10, I know I had you turn to Luke 19, that was a a mushtuk on my part, sorry. Luke chapter 10. Look with me at please at verses 9 and 10. It says, And heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you, but whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, The very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. So as Luke is unfolding his theology of the kingdom, he's talking to them about as the disciples go forth at the bidding of the Lord Jesus, and they go into these villages and they're representing him, they're to tell them, the kingdom has come near to you. The kingdom has come near to you. Take a look a little further at chapter 11. Starting in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I have cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Listen carefully to verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come, what's it say? Upon you. So the kingdom is present. Earlier, it's come near you. Now, the kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom is present. Take a look a little further now at chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, listen carefully, the kingdom of God is within you now, it's very interesting to note the context. He's talking to whom? Pharisees. Are the, these Pharisees believers? Is the kingdom of God in the Pharisees' hearts? 
No. He's not saying the kingdom of God is within you and then now, okay, that's, the, that's what the kingdom is. He's saying the kingdom of God is right here. It's within your grasp. It's in your presence. It's in front of your face. The kingdom of God is within your, your purview. Now look at chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Verses 11 and 12, Jesus starts a parable, and we're only going to just read the first line of the parable and the introduction to it. Verse 11, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So I'd say the kingdom concept here is that the kingdom is future, right? The kingdom is future. Now, you'll remember this. There was a harbinger, a forerunner of Jesus. You remember his name? John the Baptist. Remember his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is now. So what, what's going on with the kingdom? It's, 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 it's in your midst, it's come near you, it's, it's right in front of your face, it's within your grasp, it's future. Note this, ready? Very easy concept. Wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. Wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. The kingdom is where the king is. Wherever he went, he brought the kingdom of God with him because he is the king. Now, just as a, a point of interest and kind of leading into our studies in Matthew 5 and making sure we have a good feel for this, the Bible makes it very clear that the church is the body of Christ, that he is the head of the church, that we are the manifestation of, of Christ, and therefore what we'll notice as we go through our studies in coming weeks is this. The kingdom makes its appearance in time and space now through God's people, the church. It's not the full-blown kingdom that is to come. There's one coming where the king himself will rule and reign in a visible way, and it will cover the entire globe. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom has no part in what's going on in our day-to-day -day lives today. Today we live as though Jesus is present because he is present and he is our king and he is our master, he is our Lord, he is our head and we are to be those who manifest him. And so when we manifest him, guess what we do? We bring the kingdom near unto them, just like the disciples did. They went into these towns. The kingdom has come near unto you because we're representing the king himself. And so don't... don't don't say that the kingdom is just some time up in the future. God, Jesus reigns heaven and earth right now. He's seated far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one that's to come. So he's ruling heaven now, and he brings forth that rule here on earth through his church on a regular basis. This is a concept that we've been talking about over the last couple of years. God's dominion through presence, his presence among his people. So when, as God gives his presence through the Spirit of God to his people, we demonstrate his dominion. Dominion is a kingdom concept. So we bring the kingdom to earth here and now. So as we kind of draw, you know, draw our attention back into Luke chapter 
19, as we approach verse 28, what we'll see is that Jesus is preparing to enter the region of Jerusalem, and there's a tremendous amount of imagery in this passage. And our study this morning will cover verses 28 to 48. We're going to just kind of pick and uh, move through this because it's obviously it's a lot of a lot of text. But what we want to notice is this: these three facets of Jesus' messianic office. First of all, when we consider what the term Messiah is, it, it's an Old Testament term, Mashiach, Mashiach. The term Messiah is the Old Testament equivalent of a New Testament term, Christ or Christos. Both terms, Mashiach and Christos, mean anointed one. Anointed one, one who is anointed. Now when you're talking about an anointed one, it's some, someone that has oil anointed on them. There were three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed offices. That was that of king, prophet, and priest. Or you can say prophet, priest, and king. You can kind of rearrange the order however you want. But the way we're going to look at it because of the text is king, prophet, priest. Jesus is being unveiled before the people, whether they agree with it or not, he's being unveiled, not by popular vote, but by decree of the Father. He is being unveiled as the Messiah of Israel, the promised one. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. Here's how this starts. Take a look beginning in verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as, uh, excuse me, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus they shall say to him, Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So Jesus has got this thing all set up. He's, he's, he's got his, his entrance prepared with this colt, this young animal. Verse 32. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the, what, king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side 
and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who, brought, who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So we read the, the entire context here. Now we'll just kind of look through it. The context is set. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The, the, the streets are lined with people. There's a celebration of sorts. He's coming into Jerusalem. It's very obvious that the imagery is that, is that of the Messiah. Jesus is the king is the first concept that we come across. Uh, Jesus could have walked into Jerusalem. He walked everywhere. He walked all over the place, but Instead of walking into Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey. What's the reason? Because there was something to be there was something to be pointed out here. First of all, riding in on this donkey brings back two Old Testament illusions. First of all, it brings back when King David had his son Solomon ride into Gihon on a donkey to be anointed as the king over Israel. We can see that text some other time in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 32 and following. You'll see David setting up his son Solomon to, walk, to, to ride in to Gihon on this donkey, anoint him as king. So we have that imagery. And then, even more specifically, we have the text in Zechariah chapter 9 that says this. Listen carefully. This is what Zechariah 9 says. It's, it's a... A messianic prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Listen carefully. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so we have this imagery. Jesus is riding in as fulfillment of the imagery of Solomon writing in, and then even more specifically this text in Zechariah, that the, the Savior would come in, the King would come in, this Messiah would come in, riding on a donkey. Then you have the people throwing their clothes in his pathway. Well, what's that all about? doesn't sound very pleasant. Personally, thinking, keep your clothes on, I'm good with you keeping them on. That's a much better situation. But it was a sign of submission, surrender. This is our King. We're... we're we, we accept you as our king. This happened in the days of Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. The passage says there, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So we have this all over the place. The imagery is very clear. Jesus is king. Luke is portraying this because God is portraying this because he wants his people to know that Jesus is not just some ordinary teacher. He's the promised Messiah. He's the king. And where he goes, there is the kingdom. The kingdom is in your presence. There was this kingly pronouncement. It's very obvious the people recognized it. In verse 37, 
it says, then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now, if you were to look at a a messianic text like Isaiah 35, you would see that with the Messiah comes all these mighty works that would come. And so as these people are proclaiming this, they're, they're telling you, this is the Messiah. I know he's the Messiah. Additionally, in addition to that messianic text, they're also then make a very straight proclamation in verse 38. It says, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so they're, they're bringing forth this, this reference back to Psalm 118. Now, you're familiar with Psalm 118? It's one of what's called the Hallel Psalms, the praise Psalms. The people of Israel, on their way to celebrate Passover, would be walking up the road to Jerusalem, and they'd be singing these Hallel Psalms. And one of them is Psalm 118, and listen to the text. Listen to what it says in verses 25 and 26. He says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And so they already have this Hallel praise in their mind as they're heading up for Passover. They've been singing it on the way up. And then there's this, this scene. Jesus riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey. And they immediately tie Psalm 118 to him. This is that king. This is that king that can save us. The, the word Hosanna, as is translated in, in uh, uh, Matthew and Mark, Hosanna means, oh, save us. Oh, save us. And so they recognize this king. Jesus is clearly presented as the king of the kingdom. And, you know, there's a group of people among them. There's always these people. They didn't like it. They didn't like the proclamation of the people. They didn't like the popularity of Jesus. And so look again at what it says in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, what do you think they're thinking at this moment? It's curious, isn't it? Like, why is Jesus going to rebuke his disciples? Do they think that Jesus doesn't think he's the Messiah? What's going on? It's very interesting, isn't it? Who could know? Lack of approval of Jesus didn't change the fact that Jesus is king. In fact, as we've already noted, the praise of the people saying, you're the king, that also didn't change the fact that Jesus is the king. Jesus simply responds, oh, well, I guess I could do that, but let's just suppose I did. And I told the people to stop. Just, just know this. If I do this, the rocks themselves will rise up. They'll become animate in some way. And they will praise me as the king. Because it was appointed for this to take place on this day. Isn't that interesting? I think it, it's a worthwhile notation for our own thinking. That your acceptance of Jesus 
does not change him in one shred. But I have some news for you, and it's good news. Your acceptance of Jesus, your belief in Jesus, your embracing of Jesus as king will change your life forever. That's good news, friends. Jesus is king, whether you believe it or not. You don't get to vote. He's the king. But if you will recognize him for who he is, as God, as Savior, as King, your life will be irrevocably changed. Changed without remedy. Because what God will do is he'll take every one of your sins, every one of them, and he'll remove them as far as the east is from the west. And in addition to that, he will provide you with something you could never earn or attain in and of yourself. He will give you his righteousness that lasts for eternity. It's a record that never can be marred. It's a record that can never be changed. It's a record that makes us accepted through the beloved. Think about that. So your vote for Jesus doesn't change him. Your embracing of him changes you by God's grace. This is the reality. And, and Luke is portraying this. Jesus is portraying this. So in addition to Jesus coming in and clearly being demonstrated as the king, he now demonstrates in the very next little section, 41 through 44, the fact that he is not only the, the promised king, he's also the promised prophet. The promised prophet. And the way you can know that is he takes on the character and nature of the prophets of God just by his own proclamation. And you'll remember that Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, said, yes, uh, God has used me as a prophet, but there's a, promet, a prophet coming who's far better than I am, and his words you'll hear for sure. And that's a reference to Jesus. And he's operating in that prophetic messianic office here in Luke chapter 19. Look beginning in verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. That's a very prophetic thing to do. Did you know that? Remember Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet? The weeping prophet. What was he crying about all the time? Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. This is my life. I don't know. I'm a mess. I don't know what to do with life. No, it had nothing to do with himself. He wasn't all upset about his life and God's dealings with him. He was weeping over the people, just as Jesus, as he enters into the city, is weeping over their unbelief. Now, isn't that interesting? The, the streets are lined with people saying, You're the king! And at that moment, he chooses to cry over the unbelief of the people. It just tells you a little bit more. You know what it tells you? Words don't mean a thing. Words don't mean a thing. You, you can say Jesus is your king, but if he's not really your king, you can say it all day long. It doesn't make any difference. He's got to really be your king. You really need to trust him. You really need to recognize that he's the authority, and you're one of his, not he's mine. No. I'm his. He's, he's purchased me. 
Now, the benefit of that is I have this great relationship with him, and I'm, I'm in him, and I'm united with him, and I have so many privileges and blessings. But, but listen, proclaiming that Jesus is the king is not the same as him actually being your king. Is Jesus your king? Jesus weeps over the people just as the prophets of old. And then he makes this, this prophetic statement. Reminiscent of all the prophets, Jesus declares the truth. Verses 42 through 44, saying, If you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, if you'd only known what would actually bring peace, which is actually an embracing of the Messiah, not just a surface one, but a real one, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave you and uh, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know, you did not know the time of your, of your visitation. What are you saying? You only have a surface gathering of this. You don't really know me. It, it's kind of reminiscent, that passage that Jesus says, that these people are coming before him, and, and he says, depart from me. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do all these things? Uh, I never knew you. Why? You never knew me. Boys and girls, men and women, this is the heart of the matter. Life and death, hell and heaven, your eternity, it's at stake. Do you know Jesus? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Is it enough? We sang it. It's pretty. It's pretty. Christ is enough for me. We can sing it. Is it true? Or is it Jesus and I also want to do these things and this other thing and I really need this other thing over here and i got to do this. Is, is Jesus enough? If he is, life changed. If he is, your, your eternity is set. If he's enough. They didn't know. They didn't know. And so because they missed the visitation. What is a visitation? It's God's intervention. You'll remember that when, when Naomi left Jerusalem because of the famine, the reason she went back is because she heard that God had visited them with bread. You'll remember the psalm that talks about how what is, what is the the son of man. What is, the, what is man that you're mindful of? What is the son of man that you visit him? What was he talking about? He comes in salvation. He comes to save them. And what Jesus tells the people, lined up, having just declared him king, they, he says, you didn't know that I came to save you. You're looking for something else. You want us to save you so you can have some bread to eat. Boy, isn't that a common theme. People make their votes so they can make sure that the, all, all their needs are met. You know, the rich people will pay for me. It'll be fine. The rich people will take, you'll take from them. We'll spread the wealth. It'll be fantastic. Everyone makes their vote. What, what have you done for me? Well, the people of Israel were no different. Give us bread. Save us from the Romans. They didn't know. The price for missing 
The Messiah's visitation is a dark visit of another potentate from Rome. That's a quote from Daryl Bach. And he's making reference to the fact that this prophecy Jesus makes here will come true in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian comes in with his Roman armies and destroy Jerusalem and just decimate the people. Why? Because they, they wouldn't hear Jesus. Now, interestingly, it says down in verse 48, look at it with me please again, verse 48. The Pharisees, the chief priests, all these people were unable to do anything to Jesus why? For all the people were very attentive to hear him. The idea is that they were hanging on every word. But they didn't come to know Jesus. It's a little perplexing, isn't it? Is that perplexing to you? Here they are. They're lining the streets, throwing their clothes in his way, saying, you've done great and mighty things. You're the king. And they're hanging on his every word. And yet he says to them, I didn't ever know you because you didn't ever know me. It's a little confusing. I think there's a nice little warning for us, friends. Where you sit, I'm not trying to threaten you and I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I want you to know the truth. Do you know Jesus? How will you know if you know Jesus? Well, there are a couple of ways you can know. First of all, his spirit his spirit will speak within you. You know what he'll say? You are a child of God. That's what it says in Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit bears witness. He, he teaches us that we're God's children. When we're God's children, things are different. He'll manifest fruit in our lives. He'll bring forth fruitfulness in our lives. You'll see it. You'll see it. It's tangible. So don't, don't, don't come to yourself and say, well, yes, uh, on such and such a date, I prayed this prayer, and everything remained just the same. But I prayed that prayer, so I'm good to go. I wouldn't rest on that one, son. Knowing Jesus changes us. That doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It doesn't mean you'll never make the wrong decision again. It doesn't mean you'll never stray off in the wrong direction for, for a, a bit of uh, an excursion that's inappropriate, that you need to repent of. I'm not saying any of that. But if everything continues as it has from the beginning, just the same way, then what are you basing your confidence that Jesus is your king and that this kind of a prophetic message from Jesus shouldn't strike you to the heart. Consider it, friend. Consider what Jesus is saying and the warning that is here in this text with this group of people that have a, a surface embracing of Jesus. He's portrayed as the king in verses 28 to 40. He's portrayed as the prophet in verses 41 to 44. In verses 45 to 48... There is this presentation. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic. I believe it is, it is giving us implication to Jesus' priestly ministry. It could, you could argue that, well, kings deal with the temple and cleansing the temple like uh, Josiah did. Or you could say, well, the prophets, they, they, were, they were burdened for the temple like Haggai was. But if you think about temple, you think about priest, right? Because they have the, the daily service in the 
temple and, and they would offer the sacrifices and they would, they would represent God to the people and the people to God. That's what they did. And so when we come to verses 45 to 48, I think we can at least get a strong implication of Jesus' priestly ministry. Look again there at these passages. Verse 45. Then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, here's the first quote, this is from Isaiah 56, my house is a house of prayer. In Isaiah it goes on to say, for all nations. But you have made it a, and here he quotes Jeremiah 7.11, den of thieves. So what he's telling them is, you've corrupted this place, just like the people back in Jeremiah's day. You've corrupted the temple because of your actions. Instead of, instead of actually dedicating yourself to me and my service, what you've done is you've added me to your life. You go and live like the pagans live, and you sacrifice to the pagan gods. Then you come in here to make sure you cover all your bases, and you make sacrifices to me. And Jesus said, this is the reason, this is the reason why he is telling them that they really haven't known them. is because they, they come to the house of prayer, and instead they're doing business. They're doing business in the house of prayer. They've corrupted the house of of God that is designed for worship and they've used it for something else. Now Jesus in his priestly ministry can overcome things like this, can't he? When we look at Jesus' priestly ministry from the book of Hebrews, we learn a lot. Listen, listen to just some references. We don't have a high priest, a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, and what will we receive? Mercy, and we'll find grace to help in time of need. So we have a high priest who can deal with us when we are, have confused a house of worship with a house of business. Jesus is superior to the Aaronic priesthood that would have been around in these days, Jesus is a priesthood, priest of a, a higher order, of a, an eternal order, that of the Melchizedek. And his priestly ministry continues for how long? Forever. In fact, it says, he always lives to make intercession for you. Now, who is the you? Those that know Christ as their Savior. Those who Jesus is their Savior, is their King, is their Lord he is a high priest of a superior covenant. There's no, there's no questioning the legitimacy of Jesus' priestly ministry. He's the only one who is a mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. The only one. You can't go to some guy in some room somewhere and say, hey, pray, pray on my behalf. Well, they can pray for you. If they know God, if they know Jesus, they can pray for you. It's great. You come to me and talk to me about praying for you, I'll pray for you. But um, I can't make your prayers be heard. Only Jesus can do that because he's the great high priest. He's the real priest. He's the one who brings our petitions before the Lord. You see, God promised that this Messiah was coming. And unlike the promises made to us by so many politicians, God keeps his promises. Jesus is king, whether you like it or not. Jesus is a promised prophet, and he does the, fills that role nicely, telling the truth. And he is the promised priest, the perfect high priest, who 
brings us to the Lord. He brings us to God. Take a look at one other passage with me as we come to a conclusion. Matthew chapter 21. Now we read this in our responsive reading this morning. At the end of Matthew's accounting of the triumphal entry, there's this last little tidbit, and it's really, I think it's really a great thing for us to end our consideration on. It says in verse 10, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And I want to ask you that same question for your own consideration. You know, we, we've covered the triumphal entry different ways at different, for, for years, different ways. The bottom line is, as you consider him, who is Jesus? Who is he? Has who he is impacted your life? Do you believe him to be God? Do you believe him to be Savior? Do you believe him to be king? Okay, you've answered those questions in your mind. It was a very quick answer. Good. If someone were to observe your life, would it be obvious to them that Jesus is your king? Let us leave with that in our minds. We believe. You're, not, you're here for a reason. We believe that Jesus is the king. What we want to leave here saying, thinking, considering, is God, help it to be obvious to everyone around me, to my wife and my kids, to my boss and my coworkers, to my neighbors, to my friends, to my family, to everyone I come and may it be obvious to them that Jesus is my king. When you know him, he impacts your life across the board. Don't cheapen it and don't shortchange it. He can rule everything. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. Our minds are prone to wander and our affections change. Your affections do not. Your grace persists and Christ is enough. We ask that you'd help us, that we would yield our heart, yield our soul, yield our body, yield our lips to you, to your son, that while we know he is king, may it be evidenced that he is our king. In Jesus' name, amen.